Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you're invited. I'm your host, Teffer. Today I'm joined in the studio by Emile Cher. Emile is a writer, originally from Montreal, now living in Toronto. Uh, he has written plays, movies, uh, books, children's books. Uh, Emil, welcome. Thank you so much for joining. It's a true pleasure to be here to talk books. <laughs> so uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your career as a writer, because you do a lot of different things as a writer. You wear a lot of hats, is what you said. I do. And that's yeah. I, and I often think, is it a matter of circumstance or choice? And I, I have convinced myself it's a question of choice. I actually studied in Montreal. I, I graduated with an MA in creative writing from Concordia. And I remember making a, a decision, almost being at a crossroads, thinking, do I go the academic route? maybe a teaching position and all the all the, the, the security that that offers or wing it as a freelancer, if you will. And I chose the freelancing route. And that led me to um, to the opportunity to write in many, many different genres. Uh, I do, as you say, fiction, uh, even within, within children's fiction, I've done everything from board books to young adult novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, stage plays, same thing. I, I, the, the phrase I use is I write for the young and once we're young. And, and that also was what, what has drawn me to children's fiction because I know having, they're now in their 20s, but having raised two daughters with my wife, uh, how the first, you know, the, what, five, six, seven years and beyond, no doubt, of a child's life are so formative. Mm-hmm. And to have an opportunity to have what, one of my tiny thumbprints on the clay of childhood is, pr- is just profoundly gratifying. So the, uh, I often tell those who have asked uh, when I give writing workshops or talking to kids at schools uh, that I write in many different genres by choice. And given the opportunity, if I was told, well, you know, you can write whatever you like and we will take care of you financially, wouldn't that be a writer's dream? <laughs> I would find myself returning to the same stories that I've continued to write. Mm-hmm. So I go where the story takes me. And that has meant writing in many, many different genres. And it's been very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Even if it requires sometimes a profound head change, if you will, from morning to days, morning to afternoon. So I may write a picture book in the morning and then dive into one of my current projects is a Holocaust play based on a true story uh, that I'm developing with a the- uh theater company in Seattle. So to go from a lovely children's book, as you will, with, with the world of, of children's literature, which isn't always fluffy and sugar and spice, nor should it be, but it's it's a fairly colorful one in every sense of the word, to a play about the Holocaust, as they sometimes require uh, stepping out the house, walking my dog. I've often thought I should, I'd love to deduct him as a tax expense for work, <laughs> because he has, he, has, uh, he has profoundly affected my writing uh, career, it, just in terms of clearing my head and then mm-hmm. returning to the next project at hand. Mm-hmm. How did you first start writing for children? That's uh, it. Actually, when I think back, it, it began with stage plays. I studied theater as at McGill in Montreal as an undergrad. Then did the um, uh, con- con- the, the Green Creative Writing Concordia, and I think it actually began with stage plays. And as to what drew me particularly to start writing for children, again, when I'm asked, well, if you were, you know, classic question, if you weren't a writer, what would you be? I'd want to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And then I find myself thinking, not simply a teacher, but what grade? And I migrate towards the younger kids uh, for a few reasons. One is, they, um, for a host of reasons, primary school teachers are largely women. So that's a whole other... We can talk about that. There's a oh, yeah. sociological discussion there, right? <laughs> you get up towards university, there's more men. That whole other discussion. <laughs> uh, and they're paid much more, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah. But uh, I just love that age. Again, going back to the clay of childhood. And I do think it's important for younger ones to see male role models mm-hmm. at, the, at the kindergarten age and showing the emotions that, and, and the, the consideration and care that we too often don't associate with men mm-hmm. and too often stereotype as, as sort of being the domain of women. So because of that, because of my just a longstanding interest in childhood, I've worked at summer camps all my life, it seemed almost natural to start trying to create stories for children as well. So it began with stage plays. 
And that in and of itself made for a natural transition into children's literature. It began actually with board books with the first foray into it. Uh, and again, I just love the idea of you are never too young to start hearing stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, before children are capable of knowing what language is, before they can read or write, here we are having them cradled in our laps. And we're reading, of course, the classics, Goodnight Moon mm -hmm. or Very Hungry Caterpillar. Or goodness knows there are many, many other wonderful board books out there. And then it was just a matter of working with... Uh, uh, then I had the YA novel. Mm -hmm. And then it's often a matter of relationships. The YA novel was published by Scholastic in Canada and a Scholastic imprint, which no longer exists in New York. And so much, well, like all things in life, it's relationships. Mm -hmm. And once I had a relationship with editors at Scholastic, I had an idea for a picture book. Uh, and I approached the editor I'd worked with on Young Man with Camera, my debut novel. And it's just conversations, it's back and forth. And that led to uh, my first picture book, Mittens to Share, beautifully illustrated by Irene Luxmacher. Mm -hmm. I'm always making sure to do the shout outs to the illustrators. It really is beautifully illustrated. It's, oh, it's, it's, it's one. And I'm not, I'm not sure yeah. <laughs> if, if, if many of your listeners or some of your listeners would know, they're always, people are often a little bit shocked to discover that I have no conversation, no communication as the author of the text with the illustrator of the text when it comes to picture books. Okay. And probably for good reason, because you can imagine, even though I believe I'd have the willpower to, you know, <laughs> keep lips pursed and, and you know, hands in my pocket and, and not tapping them on the shoulder, that I, I can see the, the understanding behind that. I also had no idea. That's fascinating. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah, Very, there's, no I'm working on a current one now, but that's the exception. More often than not, you have absolutely no correspondence until after the book is published. So it's just all, it's all the publishers who Publish, decide they, They're like marriage brokers. Yeah. They take yeah. the text. <laughs> and, and really, and, and, and of course, when you're working with a house you respect, yeah. They, they, you, you got to believe they'll make the right choice. And again, mm -hmm. more often than not, during this past week, I've been giving uh, school visits as part of Jewish Book Month, sponsored mm -hmm. by the Jewish Public Library. And I've gone into schools, and I've done with kids, grade one, grade two, showing these picture books, talking about the essence of storytelling, and I won't go into all the particulars now. But one thing I point out in several of my picture books, illustrators have added their little touches, sometimes as simple as a little dog, yeah. little small little touches. So it's, it's, a, it's an act of faith. Mm -hmm. And that I got to believe that unless I want to self-published, that the publisher will find somebody who they think is best positioned to bring my words to life. And it has worked out beautifully. Now, it's not exactly the same, but I imagine there's a similar kind of faith when you're uh, producing one of your screenplays or one of your plays. Totally. Yeah. Again, I, again I, as I mentioned, again, in passing at one point this week, I said unless, I mean, it's a question almost of control. <laughs> and, and I guess, you know, another, if, if control and collaboration is one of the most overused words, but there's a real truth to it. You have to be prepared to, to collaborate. And I never have a sense of ownership of my story. I really don't. Mm -hmm. There's this notion of agency. I just think, how lucky am I to spend my days somewhere where these stories come from? I don't know. I think Leonard Cohen once said, if he knew where, was, where good songs came from, he'd go there more often. You know, same idea. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I just feel I'm this sort of like, lucky me, I get to filter these stories. Where they come from, I don't question. Um, but but it's 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 I don't have a sense of ownership, and so there's a letting go. Mm -hmm. So unless I'm prepared to direct a play of my own, I, same thing, an act of faith. And again, you, you have to be discriminating. You don't I don't won't do with any publishing house. I wouldn't go to any production company. But you go to the ones you believe will do. You know who who share your vision. Mm -hmm. And my goal, my philosophy is always does it serve the story, and no one's particular agenda. So yes, I've given it over. And same thing, directors. There have been instances where a director may have made a choice that wouldn't have been my choice. But by and large, you know, I've never been disappointed. You're working with professionals, and you have to believe that they'll, they'll, um, as they say, have that same professional commitment that you would. Absolutely. And it has worked. Mm -hmm. And in other instances, I'll never forget, I saw a student production of one of my plays. She was, I think, 17 years old, and she'd made some, she was a student director. 
still in high school, and she'd made some choices that I just thought were outstanding. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the joy of it too. You, it's like half egg, uh, half half empty, half full. You can go in dreading the possibilities, or you can go in embracing what may come. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think of writing as this kind of solitary endeavor. But when we talk to authors, and I mean, for me personally as a writer, I know so much of the writing process is getting that feedback and getting totally. those changes, and <clears throat> and working with an editor. Yeah, you know, and, the, and again, and the role of the editor. And I often, to me, the analogy is like a coach. Mm-hmm. You could be the coach of a hockey team, and not necessarily. In fact, you probably aren't necessarily anywhere near the best hockey player. You know, you, gotta, you probably know how to skate, but mm-hmm. you don't have to be really proficient at being a hockey player. It's a different skill knowing how to manage a hockey team. And I think people don't appreciate the value of what an editor does. Mm-hmm. And even something as simple, I went, I was recently in Nashville, and there was an exhibit at a museum about Eric Carl's, Eric Carl's The Very Hungry Caterpillar. I think it was the 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And at one point I'm looking, and I love the genesis of stories, and the initial draft, he had actually called it The Very Hungry Worm. And his, his editor said... No worm, you know, they're probably thinking about a bit of marketing, you know, they're a bit slimy. I mean, you know, God knows I love worms, but she said, how about a caterpillar? And so that was the editor's choice, and off we go. And to say the rest is history is an understatement. And that changes the ending, too. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Which well, that's is exactly just it. iconic. Right. Worms do not turn, turn into yeah. butterflies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's, and so there's, and the conversations, the back and forth in uh, my conversation with, I worked, I had the, Luxury of working with two editors on Young Man with Camera, my YA novel, one and shown in in Toronto and Cheryl Klein in New York, and I don't think people realize again the back and forth conversations and the the idea of raising the stakes. Mm-hmm. And in the initial drafts, I had I knew I'd have a young protagonist, thirteen years old, with some type of deformity, for lack of a better word, which would have caused him to be mercilessly teased. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, maybe you'll have almost a recessed chin Mm -hmm. that sometimes you can have a chin you can barely see and goodness knows what kids are like Mm -hmm. that's all they need to pounce and my uh, editor kept sort of pushing like you know that's not quite cutting it let's raise the stakes Mm -hmm. and in the end we ended up with facial scars burns Mm -hmm. and same thing what you said with the caterpillar one choice often leads to many other choices uh, for the better and once we decided to go with facial burns I created this situation where this kid is five or six years old he wants to make uh, spell a word with vegetable soup you know noodle uh, alphabet soup, rather, mm-hmm. and it's on a pot at the back of the stove. He leans forward, uh, and his shirt ends up getting caught on flames because there's something as applesauce brewing on the front mm-hmm. burner. Mm-hmm. He gets these terrible burns. It's for life. But I'm so glad we made that choice. So glad just from a, from a narrative point of view, mm-hmm. because now you bring other layers that you never articulate. But subtext to me is so powerful in storytelling. Things that are not said but that are implied. And when I talk about the book again at, at school talks, I say, well, who is likely? Uh, and again, it's a bit of a stereotype, but who is likely simmering the applesauce? Well, the kids say, well, mom. Mm-hmm. Okay, mom's there. And what if mom said, no, mom knows the applesauce was simmering. She's watching something TV. She said, you know, I'll get to it. I'll turn it off in two minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, in those two minutes, who went to go stir the alphabet soup? Her son. What is, how does mom feel knowing, feeling she's partly responsible for these permanent burns? None of that is said, mm-hmm. but it's all implied. Mm-hmm. So in hindsight, I think, what a richer choice to have gone with the facial burns and to in some you know, in some way, if you choose to read it that way, implicate the mum and her guilt. Mm-hmm. And how would she manifest that guilt? Probably with anger. So maybe instead of giving the kid all the sympathy she needs, she reminds him of her failing in that moment. Mm-hmm. So so the, well, we can call it the caterpillar consideration. Yeah, the caterpillar <laughs> consideration. That's great. That's a title for this. <laughs> um, you've worked, so we've been talking about how editors and uh, and dram- adapters and, and illustrators and directors change yes, the story. Yes. You have actually been 
an adapter yourself. I have, I have. You have adapted somebody other has people's put their, stories to And that's stage. been a conversation where somebody, an author, had to have put mm-hmm. their faith in me mm-hmm. to adapt their, their book for the stage. So it's similar. What do you find that process is like? It's really gratifying. Well, first of all, of course, I'm only drawn to books that I feel are worth telling on stage. And again, again, I gave a workshop a few weeks ago about that very thing. How do you take a story? Not necessarily a book, because sometimes, very often, particularly in movies, the genesis of a film can be an article in, in a magazine. Uh, that just happened with, um, I think it's a beautiful morning, the, the film about uh, Fred Rogers, mm-hmm. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It began as an article that was published 20 years ago. Casablanca began as a play that went nowhere. You know, So there's many, many examples of, of the genesis of stories. Um, and so I'm only drawn to stories that I feel deserve to be told on stage, if you will. Not all stories will, will necessarily work on stage. So once I'm beginning with that foundation, I'm drawn to a story, I feel moved. I, and usually because of the beauty, the inherent beauty of the story. And I'm thinking, you have told this beautiful story as a book. Let's We can reach a whole other audience, literally, by turning it into a, a stage play. And not only that, in the process of adapting it, enriching the beauty, if you will, and, and highlighting things that you simply can't highlight in a book because theater by its very nature is visual. Mm-hmm. And so I see that as, so I'm drawn to books that I feel moved, that I have pursued because I thought, oh, I want to have a hand. And again, it's, I play one role. I'm the playwright, but there are many people, especially in theater, who, who bring, you know, who sit around the table and bring their respective uh, visions to the play. And, um, and, I, and, I, and my goal throughout is to honor the spirit of the story. That can yeah. be challenging, always to stay on, stay focused on that. I have that layers. That's the very nature of it. Otherwise, just read the book on stage. You know, that's a, that, just read the book. Mm-hmm. And so I always ask, how, how can I enrich this, this world through, by staging it and always ensuring I stay faithful to the, to, the, to the spirit of the story, which is what attracted me to it in the first place? Mm-hmm. We on the show, uh, when right now there are a lot of YA books being turned into movies or TV series, yeah. we see this a lot. Yeah. And so something we do on the show is we will watch those and sort of compare and contrast yes. with the book. And I think... Uh, it always comes down to that is the spirit of the book there because right. obviously you have to make changes when you're adapting something to a screenplay. Exactly. Or you why have bother? To, so one of the things we see is in the Hunger Games right. uh, book to movie in the movie they show a lot more of the sort of game making and the right. TV aspect which I think works fantastically. And it can work. Exactly. And it's, um, it's wonderful when they can complement each other. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they're not in competition. They should literally complement each other and feed off each other and it's wonderful when mm-hmm. that happens. And as you, more often than not you often people hear people complain that a film can't do just to the novel, which is probably true. Uh, stage plays tend to be a bit of a different beast. There's a consideration. I'm not sure why, but more often than not, they seem to be more warmly embraced. I haven't given this a lot of thought, but a lot of stage adaptations seem to be, as I say, embraced, I think, more wholeheartedly than the film mm-hmm. version. Maybe because in film, the, the, uh, the stakes are so much higher financially. It costs tens of millions of dollars to make a film, and therefore you have many more fingers in that pie. Mm-hmm. People making decisions who may have no artistic considerations, you're just thinking of the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And so you can make decisions, casting choices, what, what you will, that are really at odds with the spirit of the story. Theater, yes, is costly. I mean, it's, you know, it's not for free, and, and theaters are struggling, but the stakes are lower. And, um, and I, I just think it's, you're more likely to stay faithful to the experience in a stage adaptation versus the screen. Stage adaptation may leave a little more space for dialogue as well. Definitely. A little more space for writing. Exactly. Yeah. You can have those moments. I mean, it's so quick. As you know, in in film, it's so quick, 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 back, back, Mm -hmm. back. So in November, we've been doing a theme on uh, Remembrance Day and we're taking it you know, we we did talk about books that we teach about World War II with. We talked about Number right. of the Stars, Sadako and the Thousand Paper Cranes. We've also talked a little bit about um, 
just Canada's history and Canada's military history. Right. Um, and you have done a lot of work writing Holocaust narratives. I have. Um, and I would love to hear a little bit of your perspective on the process of teaching children about horrible things. It, it, it's a great, it, and it, it's a real challenge. And I sort of grapple with that. And in fact, I'm in the midst of, of that very thing. I, I've been brought on uh, to, to adapt. The genesis was there was a, a woman named Mona Golubek, and Lee Cohn worked on a fictionalized memoir of Mona's mother's story. Mona's mother, uh, Lisa Yura, was a member of Kinder Transport. And I don't want to go into great mm-hmm. history now, but Kinder Transport, when just leading up to the Second World War, uh, with an eye towards protecting their children, families across Europe literally put their children on trains that were destined for Britain, and in many cases never to see them again. That's Again, I don't want to go into a great history lesson now. So many children were eff- almost effectively orphaned. I mean, some were reunited after the war, but many would have lost their parents in the course of the war. And this young woman was a piano prodigy from Austria, ended up in London, and had the good fortune of ending up in, an, in, in a home with many other children like her, other children from this kinder transport where there was a piano. So she ended up finding, the piano saved her, literally. Ended up going to the United States, and her daughter ended up writing a fictionalized, a, a, a composite using composite characters. I mean, it was a memoir rooted in truth, but she had to fictionalize many events. I had a hand taking that, what was a YA book, and cutting it down in size to make it suitable for a middle-aged crowd. And that was often just part, you know, cutting the words and whatnot. I was subsequently asked, this is fairly recently, Mona is now turning that into a picture book. And I've been brought on, again, to just give her a hand in terms of shaping the words and what have you. And now we're talking about a picture book. We're talking about children, six, seven, but we're talking about the Holocaust. And yet, we don't, well, we don't want to be explicit about the Holocaust. Now, the one advantage of picture books, you have something called back matter, where you can frame the story literally by giving, and it's often for the benefit of the parents or the caregivers or the teacher, some of the historical background that puts the story in context so you don't have to mention words like Holocaust and certainly gas chambers in a picture book. Mm -hmm. So it's more implied, and that's a huge challenge. How do you imply what was happening without stating it? That's for picture books. So you have to, as always, you have to be aware of the age you're dealing with. In Hannah's suitcase, the play itself, when when it's staged, we recommend always 10 and older. Okay. Can't stop somebody from being a, an eight-year-old, but that's the recommendation. Because early in the play, we have one of the characters say, "Gassed." They were mm-hmm. gassed. So the, the, it's it's a really fine, fine, da- you know, needle to thread between not sugarcoating, because uh, I don't think you're doing anyone that service, and yet being aware of how much do you tell, and and tr- it's a struggle. But finding that 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 sweet spot where they can, where a child can understand the gravity mm-hmm. of the situation but without absorbing it uh, to the point where, of course, they just feel paralyzed. Mm-hmm. What, what I often say, and I think this could relate somewhat to this question, uh, with the play itself, uh, as opposed to, the, let's say, children's books about the Holocaust, people who would ask me when Hannah Suitcase, my adaptation of Karen Levine's just beautiful book, can children handle it? How do children respond? And I say, children are usually fine. It's the parents or the grandparents next to them who have tears streaming down their cheeks. And I, I talk of the three C's. I think children have a capacity for darkness. And if you look at fairy tales, I mean, if you actually give a sober look at a fairy tale, think of Hansel and Gretel. What is she doing? She is fattening them up and is going to toss them into an oven. Like, really? Um, so they have a capacity for darkness and they have a curiosity for darkness. And I always think, remember how when we watch, even, even adults, you watch a horror movie through fingers over your eyes, right? Like you're watching but not watching. We, we are drawn to the dark. Yeah. I mean, for a host of reasons. So they have a curiosity and they have a capacity. What they lack, thankfully, because they may only be eight or nine or ten, is context. Mm-hmm. And so as adults, when we read a book, a child, a children's book about the Holocaust, or we see a, ch- a stage play for family audiences about the Holocaust, we bring that context. 
we know what we're capable of as human beings. Mm-hmm. Kids haven't quite gotten there just yet. So that's that's sort of, I think, that's something I'm mindful of as part of the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think children have such a capacity for empathy and compassion. Exactly. And it's wonderful, and you want to encourage that, and you want to teach them when they're young to be empathetic and to, to understand the plight of other people. I, and but you also don't want to horrify them and no, scar them. I know for me as a parent you no, know totally it's, it's there's and although you know but, but you know equally you know do you do you you know any front page news in any news article these days I mean you know you almost want to put blinders on your kids there's some nasty stuff yeah. out there yeah, absolutely. and so that becomes that's a whole other discussion about the role of parents or caregivers whoever's raising the child you know authors and playwrights we are just sort of part of this larger picture but there's the front page, and now with mm-hmm. phones, iPhones, and what have you, kids are exposed to things they never would have been exposed to 20, 30 years ago. So mm-hmm. how do you navigate those waters? So in mm-hmm. some ways, we're all giving consideration in a larger scale. The difference is, as playwrights, we're sort of distilling those experiences and putting them into stories or as, as authors. Uh, but if these are discussions I think we should all be having. This is a question that I ask occasionally, and it's kind of a mean question. But um, Bring it on. <laughs> um, do you think that when you're writing for children, you have a code of ethics that's different from when you're writing for adults. That's a, that's a great question, yeah. and, and not consciously, because I yeah. think this um, again. What I often say to those who care to listen, again, I'm thinking about writers' craft classes and whatnot, mm-hmm. that there's, from my perspective, and I truly believe this, there is no difference if I'm writing for a six-year-old or a sixty-year-old. They deserve the best story I can tell. Mm-hmm. I really believe that. I think there's this danger when you write for children. People often think, oh, I'll write a, tr-, you know, I always want to write a children's book. I'm going to take next weekend off and write one. Well, good luck. So in Code of Ethics, I, it, I would apply mm-hmm. that same code, if you will, to writing for adults. Mm-hmm. Meaning, writing a story, of course, obviously, is to the best of my ability, but with a sense of integrity. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that applies to, to readers or audiences of, of any age. Mm-hmm. And I think it serves everyone well if we apply those ethics across the board. Now, now I'm mindful, of course, um, as they say, to a certain sensitivity, if you will, when you're when you're creating a, a book for children. But that's again being no different than one would hope you'd have that same same sensitivity in any context. Mm-hmm. You know, you're dealing with the elderly. I mean, these are classic questions. There's, there's a film, uh, and I don't know the name of it. It's a current film where there's a um, a woman who's, I believe she's dying, it's, I think it's a Japanese, a Chinese film, I'm not sure, but there's a woman who's dying and they decide as a family not to tell her. This huge moral choice. Well, there's ethics there that are involved. So in other words, these, this code of ethics that you speak of, I think should be with us, but we should apply them regardless of the the story we're telling that's and how we're telling answer. it. Yeah, that's a wonderful answer. This has been very efficient. I'm not sure that I have anything else to, to ask you. I, 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 one of my other, I, I have a few guiding principles. One of them is less is more. Are there any works that have really influenced you as a writer, especially things you read as a child or children's? Well, yeah, or that's, so that's what you go back yeah. to. Yeah. So it's interesting. So a couple, um, well, well, it's funny. You know, the ones, the stories that endure, I'll give one that everyone knows, but it, but it's still, it's important. You know, Charlotte's Web. Yeah. You know, how is it that I remember, well, I had the, again, my daughters are now in their 20s, but when they were young, of course, we read to them. Uh, and I remember so clearly, I was born and raised in Montreal, I was Coronation School, which is on the Victoria, uh, well, basically, Victoria, near, near Van Horn. But uh, I think I was in grade three, and I think, almost sure our teacher read Charlotte's Web aloud. And of course, it affected me like it affected millions of others. And then the joy of, the joy of parenthood when you're, in reading books to children is you revisit your own childhood. So when I'm sharing Charlotte's Web with my kids, it's a glorious experience. And again, it goes back to, this sounds a bit lofty, but 
when a when a story is uh, rooted in essential truths, those truths endure. They transcend, I think, cultures, class, age, and so to return, you know, there's a reason why Charlotte's Web is a classic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, another one that again, which is so not well known, very Canadian. We talk about Canadian stories. It's called the Scalpel of the so- and the Sword. It's about Dr. Norman Bethune. And that goes back to your, your what you spoke about earlier, about kids love people who do good. Like when you talk about the Holocaust, and we talk about it, and I'm simplifying, I'm really reducing being reductive. And I, in fact, I love the grays, but for a moment, I'll, I'll step out of that world and talk about black and white hats. Mm-hmm. So we talk about evil. That's the black-hatted characters. We know that. And kids are aware of that. But we need the black hats to, in fact, show that, in fact, they are a minority. I mean, really, we have to believe that at heart. Otherwise, let's throw ourselves in front of a bus. They, they, they take up a disproportionate amount of time and, and real estate in terms of, of, you know, airspace and newspapers and what have you. But uh, we are reminded, as and I mentioned, that, that Christ, something like the Holocaust, we know this, and this is, sounds trite, but it's worth restating. Situation like the Holocaust, any type of profound crisis brings out the worst and the very best. And so someone like Dr. Norman Bethune, I know, I was a kid and I was drawn to that. Look what this man did. He, here he is in Canada and he goes in China to fight for what he believes, you know, is the right, you know, fighting the good fight. That's profoundly inspiring. Mm-hmm. So I think that stayed with me with this notion of morality and making moral choices. That has infused a lot of my work, not in ways that are didactic, God help me, that's the last thing I want to do, but making characters finding themselves in situations where they have to make a moral choice, uh, making that choice and living with the consequences. Mm-hmm. There's a, a quote that comes up a lot for us from Nick Stone, who's the author of Dear Martin, Odd One Out. She's a really, right. really... Uh, excellent YA author who we actually met at Montreal Fest, right. um, and she says that YA is about writing into hope. Absolutely, and I think what you're saying makes me think of that. that well, and especially for why, because you know when, but in, but in adolescence, do we have those possibilities? Mm-hmm. Because we know, I mean, this is again 101, but we get more fixed as we age, mm-hmm. and this, and which is another reason why I was so drawn to that age group. I worked at summer camp for many many years outside in the Laurentians of Montreal with that age, the 13, the 14, the 15-year-olds. And I love that because they still have one foot sort of planted in childhood, but they're heading towards adulthood. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful time. And and, they, and so there is hope. They are not cynical, we know that, or rarely, I hope not, at, at 14 or 15. And they, uh, they see, obviously, we know the world through a different filter. And I think the challenge as writers is to have them take that little filter with them as they move forward, that filter of possibility. Kids mm-hmm. always talk about possibility. They brim with hope. They're not aware more often of the consequences. We tend to sort of da- you know, tamp that down as adults. And again, it's finding that balance. But, abs- but writing in and of itself to me is an act of hope and faith. Mm-hmm. All creativity is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I said, and I'll give you one little quick example. I, I, um, again, relating to the Holocaust, I gave a talk. There was a, at one point I was talking about monuments and how you build monuments. This was in the context of even a class discussion you can have about the Holocaust. And I mentioned this book burning that happened in Berlin in May 1933. And they had built a monument. And then s- since then, I mean, there was a horrific event. But now every year to commemorate that 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 book burning, they have a book sale. Mm. So, you know, there's the sign is small. So I really, I really believe every act of creativity in of itself, creation by its very nature, is a hopeful act. Thank you so much for joining us. A, what a wonderful note. <laughs> a, a true pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Yeah! If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyeahpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at yeahpodcast. And individually, I'm at Tefer Bear. 
And Emil can be found at Emil Scher. That's E-M-I-L-S-H-E-R. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shout out to our patrons Catherine Resch, Erica Stitchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Tenhove, Chantal Thomas, and Matt Dever. We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at TeePublic. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, and by sharing this episode with a friend. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by Tepper Ajemian and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Hi, I'm Julian McKenzie. And I'm Tristan Damore. We're the co-hosts of the Scrum Podcast, a show that analyzes the current sports media landscape in Canada. Join us every Monday as we break down trends, interview Canadian sports media personalities, and discuss stories that matter. You can find us on the Upfront Network, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you get podcasts like... Stitcher. SoundCloud. Google Play Music. Uh, Spotify. How about Spider Podbean? It's making a great comeback, as I hear. Yeah, how, how are shares for that, by the way? Yeah, well... Next question. Uh, message in a bottle. Uh, crowded alley in uh, the Bell Center. Uh, Joe Rogan's bunker. Crowded alley in the Air Canada Center. No, Burn- actually, it's uh, uh, Scotiabank Arena now. Yeah. But I still say uh, Air Canada Center. Anyway. Yes. Listen to our shit, please. Please. The Scrum Podcast on the Upfront Network or anywhere else you get podcasts. On September 16, 1993, NBC aired the first ever episode of Frasier, a spin-off series about psychiatrist Dr. Frasier Crane, the much-loved Seattle shrink from Cheers. Ten days earlier, a baby was born. A baby who, we'd come to learn, was destined to have someone pay him $264 to watch through every episode of Frasier with different special guests, unpacking the deeper themes behind each episode. That baby is me, Tom Zalatni, and this is a terrible, terrible idea. Tune in to They're Calling Again right here on the Upford Network.